We're talking about the fact that God forgives iniquity. In the first hour, I referenced the sixth chapter of the Roman letter, and during the discussions that we were having with various people during the break, it was brought home to me more and more the importance of this chapter because everything we're talking about is in the sixth chapter of the book of Romans. So I'd like to spend at least part of our time this hour discussing that chapter since it's so pertinent to this issue. Paul had never been to Rome when he wrote the Roman letter, but he longed to go to the great capital from which government extended all over the empire. And since most of those to whom he wrote in this letter had never met him personally, he took pains in the letter to give an extended declaration of his teachings, more than he did when he was writing to people who he had been around. They already knew what he taught, and so he gave them succincter versions. But this is a long letter. There are 16 chapters in the Roman letter as we have it divided. If the Roman letter were a mountain, chapter 8 would be the peak. After chapter 8, we have three chapters about the Jews and following those, a lot of practical things from chapter 12 on through the end. But in the first eight chapters, we have the unfolding of Paul's theology. The chapters preceding chapter 8 cause us to climb progressively step by step through the development of the argument that Paul is making. In chapter 1, he shows the steps down to degradation taken by the Gentiles as they dove deeply into sin. In chapter 2, he shows that the Jews are also concluded to be under sin. In chapter 3, he concludes all to be under sin, whether Jew or Gentile. There is none righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And he shows that justification comes by the obedience of faith in Jesus. In chapter 4, he gives a tremendous example of justification by faith in the person of Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. 24 years before he was circumcised, 400 years before the law was given, Paul says, let's walk in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham. In chapter 5, Paul concludes, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God. And he writes what I call the much more chapter, showing that no matter how great things are for us right now, much more awaits us in the future. Five times in chapter 5, he says much more. He says, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And so in light of that statement, as we pick up chapter 6, we find Paul asking the obvious question that springs from it. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Many would say to Paul that his doctrine was that of an antinomian, that it was against law, it was lawlessness. The Jewish legalists said to Paul that except you be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you've got no possibility of being saved. The Libertine said, Paul, according to you, I should just sin like mad so that the more grace will come, the more I sin. That was the argument of Rasputin in Russia years ago. The more you sin with abandon, the more God, the, the more you allow God to exercise his grace. If you're just an ordinary sinner, you're not allowing God enough latitude, enough opportunity to show his glory. So Rasputin said, be an extraordinary sinner. Sin like mad because you're going to be all right anyway. That's antinomianism. And that's what Paul was talking about back in chapter 3 of the Roman letter, verse 8, when he said, we are slanderously reported as saying, let us do evil that good may come. The Libertines were saying, Paul, we accept what you say, and we're pushing it to its logical conclusion. Some of these people undoubtedly lived in places like Corinth, where they had all kinds of issues related to sin. Paul is not going to abandon grace in order to accommodate the legalist. 
nor will he abandon grace to restrict the liberty. Chapter 6 is inextricably and permanently linking the holy life with true salvation. The justification of chapters 3, 4, and 5 leads to the sanctification of chapters 6, 7, and 8. Jude says in verse 4 that there are certain men crept in unawares, ungodly men who turn the grace of God into lasciviousness and thereby deny the Lord. So Paul asks, shall we continue in sin? The word continue in the Greek language is an intensified word meaning to abide, remain, stay. It's used of staying in a house and making your residence there. Shall we who have come into Christ habitually sustain the same relationship to sin that we had before? Shall we go on with that same relationship where sin had full control and we yielded completely to it? Can a person come into Christ and go on in the same life pattern they had before? Can there be a divine transaction that has no impact on the life? And the answer is in verse 2 in the Greek, The King James Bible says, God forbid, but meginoito does not translate to God forbid. It's an idiom expressing the strongest possible reaction. This is an outraged indignation. It means perish the thought. No way. May it never be. It's a denial with abhorrence of such a thought. The very suggestion of continuing in sin is thoroughly obnoxious to Paul. So he's saying no, 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 by no means. Absolutely not. How shall we who have died to sin live any longer in it? Paul does not equivocate about grace. He doesn't go back and edit chapters 3, 4, and 5. He says you cannot sustain the same relationship to sin you had before because you have died to sin. This is the fundamental premise of the whole argument in chapter 6, that death and life are not compatible with each other. You can't be dead and alive to the same thing in the same sense at the same time. Now on a Sunday afternoon after a big meal, I've often spoken to groups of people like you. Some of you have been in those groups many times on a Sunday afternoon after a big meal. And I know from experience that some of you can be alive and look dead. Sometimes you can go to a funeral and somebody is dead, but they look alive. Oh, I like what they've done with their hair. I'm glad they left their glasses on. That's possible physically. But Paul says spiritually it's a contradiction for a Christian to be living in sin when he has died to it. A definite break with sin was made. That's part of our identity as believers. This is one of the themes of 1 John. The one who is born of God cannot continue in habitual persistent sin as a lifestyle. If sin is a realm or a sphere, we no longer live in that realm or sphere. Are we saying that Christians never sin? Of course we're not. We all know better than that. In fact, John said, if you say you don't sin, you're adding lying to your other sins. But there is an incompatibility there. If you say, diabetics can't eat sugar, you don't mean by that that it's physically impossible for a diabetic to ever eat sugar. You mean that there is an incompatibility that's problematic. And similarly, Christians and sin are incompatible. We've been translated out of the kingdom of darkness into his marvelous light. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Christ not only died for what I did, but for what I am. And the love of Christ constrains us. We no longer live in sin as a way of life. We live a holy life with occasional sin. So the apostle says in Colossians 3, verse 3, Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Why? For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. 
Paul's not saying that when you became Christian, you instantly became perfect. I know better than that in my own life and everybody else's life. But a Christian cannot remain in, abide in, stay in, reside in sin the way he did before conversion because he died to sin. I don't know if Doug Twiddell's still around here or not. I guess he's teaching somewhere else at the moment. But he mentioned a few years ago that he had encountered a man who claimed that baptism was not mentioned in the Roman letter. Can you imagine that? But I think this man really believed it. He just thought the Roman letter is all about grace and there wouldn't be a place for baptism in there. So maybe he had read it cursorily and forgot. I'd like to think that he wasn't intentionally lying to make a statement like that. But what a statement it is where Paul says explicitly right here in Romans 6, we're baptized into Christ and we put on Christ in baptism and our life is fused with the life of Christ. He who is joined to the Lord is one spirit. When you became a Christian, you became one with him. You were buried with him in baptism. You were placed into his death. When you're baptized, you attend your own funeral. We've seen funerals up at the pool this week. There's a lot spiritually going on there that we do not see with our physical eyes. Buried with him and then raised up with him. What comes up out of the water is something different than what went into the water. You die to sin, to live to God, and you're different. You're fused with the eternally holy Christ. Baptism doth also now save us, says the Apostle Peter. Paul tells Titus that we were washed with the washing of regeneration. Our sins are washed away. Acts chapter 22, verse 16. Just as Christ was raised from the dead, in verse 4 here in Romans 6, so you're raised to walk in newness of life. We're justified to be sanctified. We die to sin in order to live in Christ. I'm not what I ought to be, but I'm sure not what I was. As Christ's resurrection life was made possible by his death, our holy life is made possible by our death to sin and our being raised to walk in newness of life. Newness of life is not the Greek word neos, not new in terms of chronology, rather it's the word kainos, new in terms of quality. It's a new kind of life that's not like the old life. In the past it was sin and it was iniquity, and now there is a pattern of righteousness. Ezekiel 36 calls it a new heart. Ezekiel 18 calls it a new spirit. 2 Corinthians 5 calls it a new creation. Galatians 6.15 calls it a new creature. Ephesians 4.24 calls it a new man. Revelation 2.17 says overcomers get a new name. Psalm 40 says we have a new song. Everything is new. We walk in newness of life. Now walk refers to our daily spiritual conduct. He's the vine. We are the branches. He bears fruit through us. And our fruit is what we exist to produce. The second chapter of the Ephesian letter said that you are God's workmanship, created anew in Christ that you should walk in good works. A Christian is new. A Christian has become something that he or she never was before. It's not an addition. It's a transformation. Becoming a Christian is not getting something new. It's becoming someone new. You don't turn over a new leaf. You turn up with a new life. You died to sin, and sin is no longer the abiding power in your life. So Charles Wesley's words in that song, And Can It Be, come into play here. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, 
and follow thee. That's exactly what the sixth chapter of the Roman letter is saying. He's saying justification leads to sanctification. If you're not different, the apostle says, examine yourself whether you even be in the faith. Because Jesus changes us from the inside out. Galatians 2.20. Mentioned it earlier, but it's worth repeating here. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. There is a new I. John 8.34. Whosoever goes on committing habitual, persistent sin as their pattern of life is the slave of sin. Goes right with Romans 6.18. Being made free from sin, you became the slaves of righteousness. That's the contrast. Slaves of sin or slaves of righteousness. And that's why the Apostle John says that we have overcome the world. Either sin dominates you or the Lord dominates you. We have died to the dominion and reign of sin. Our citizenship is in heaven from whence also we look for the Savior, and we are conformed to his image more and more until someday we'll be like him, for we shall see him as he is. He's not ashamed to call us brethren, Hebrews 2.11, because the old you is dead. You were so dead that you got buried and rose to walk in newness of life. The body of sin has been destroyed, our old man is crucified with him, and he that is dead is freed from sin. So Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 23-24 says, Put off the old man, put on the new man. Don't go on living as though you were still that old man because that old man has died. Don't go on living as if he were still there. Here in Romans 6 and 6, Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. The word old here in English could come from two Greek words. Archaos, which we get the word archaic from, and it means old from the standpoint of time. Or it could be the word paleos, which means old from the standpoint of use. And that's the word he uses here. Paleos, it means it's old from the standpoint of use. It's all worn out. It's useless. It's fit for the dump. It's to be discarded. There is a complete dissection between the old man and the new man. You're a new creation, even though not yet perfect. Paul looks at sin as being associated with the body. So he says in the 8th chapter, verse 13, mortify the deeds of the body, put them to death. We are waiting for the adoption, that is the redemption of our body. As long as we're in this body, we have a problem with sin. The body of sin is referring to our humanness as conditioned by sin. Humanness is manifested through these physical bodies that we carry around with us. The body of the believer is no longer in possession of sin. It's no longer in the possession of that. It's no longer solely controlled and conditioned and dominated by sin. So the apostle says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you. Again in Romans 12, present your bodies as living sacrifices. Now the body is potentially good. How else could it be offered to God as a sacrifice if there was not good in the body? And yet when you're in Christ, sin is no longer in control. Sin no longer calls the shots with you. You are no longer its slave. Its tyranny is broken. In the seventh chapter, verse 23, Paul looks at his body and he says, I see a law in my members, that is the members of my body, warring against the law of my mind. Back in verse 18 of that chapter, he said, I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. He's looking at his humanness there. In that humanness, there is potential for sin. There are instincts, there are bents, there are propensities that become bridgeheads for sin in our bodies. 
The body in Paul's terminology is basically the bridgehead for sin. It's the vehicle by which sin manifests itself. So here in Romans 6.16, he says, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are who you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. In verse 17, God be thanked. Whereas you were the servants of sin, you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered unto you, and you've been made free from sin and become the servants of righteousness. So we've got a new master, Galatians 5.24. They that are Christ have crucified the flesh with its affections and lusts. The flesh has been killed in terms of its dominance, although not necessarily in terms of its presence. It's like there are two fields, and there's a little road running between these two fields. And all of your life before you knew Christ, you lived in this field over here. And Satan was the dominant force in that field, and Satan dictated to you. And then, by the grace of God, you crossed over into this other field under the dominion of the Lord, and now you're controlled by righteousness and holiness, but you can still hear Satan across the road over here yelling orders at you. He's yelling orders at you, and although you are not any longer under his dominion, he has very clever ways of making you interested in what he is asking you to do. There's no real tyranny there, but he comes to us in enticing terms. And even though it's not necessary to do it, we sometimes fall prey to the very thing from which we have been delivered. In verse 6 of Romans 6, the body of sin is destroyed. That word destroyed is used 27 times in the New Testament, and it means of none effect. The body of sin loses its dominance. It loses its total control, as we have in the next chapter, chapter 7, verse 2. A woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. If her husband is dead, she is loosed. She's free from the dominance of that husband because he is dead. The word means to render inactive. It means to make idle or inoperative. It means to deprive of its strength or its force or the influence that it had or the power that it had. It means to bring to naught. The body of sin is deprived of its controlling power. Let us never forget that our old selves died with him on the cross so that the tyranny of sin over us might be broken. That henceforth we should not serve sin, as he says. He doesn't say we won't sin, but he says it's not a tyranny anymore. Now, the controlling force in our life is godliness. Verse 7, for he that is dead is freed from sin. Doesn't mean we're freed from the presence of sin. As long as we're in the flesh, we're going to have to struggle with that. We'll still hear the voice of Satan yelling from the field across the road. Verse 10 says, he died unto sin once. Why once? Because it was a victory that needed no repetition. He'll die no more because death has no more power. He broke the power of death. He offered sacrifice for sin once, and by his one offering, he perfected them forever that are sanctified. The Hebrew writer makes a major point out of that idea of once. In Hebrews chapter 7, Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 10, the idea of once for all people, once for all time. He died to sin in terms of paying the penalty. He paid the penalty of sin. In other words, he met sin's demand. He took death's toll for all of us. And that's why you don't have to go to hell to pay for your sins. One of the questions during the, the uh, break was, is, is justice done 
in this. If God forgives me, his justice done. It's done because Jesus took that justice. That's what he did when he died on the cross. He met sin's demand. He took death for all of us, and that's why you don't have to go to hell to pay for your sin because they've already been paid for and the justice of God was satisfied. The wages of your sin was the death that was died by Jesus Christ on the cross when you died to sin. Christ paid the penalty and sin has no more claim on you. So you either die in hell paying for your sins or you die in Christ and he pays for them. The choice is up to each of us. Was Christ under sin? Well, he bore our sins in his own body. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he was made sin for us. Temporarily under his, its power, by dying, he bore the weight of sin. And by rising, he broke the power of sin. And you and I came out of that grave with him, no longer under the power of sin either. That's what's meant in the song Rock of Ages. Be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Save from wrath, that's the justification. Make me pure, that's the sanctification. Both of these are right there. A Christian is not simply a person who gets forgiveness. A Christian is a person who becomes someone that they were not before. Becoming a Christian is not just getting something. It's becoming someone. It's becoming a citizen of heaven. I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I wish to be. I'm not what I hope to be, but by the grace of God, I'm not what I was. We accept what we can understand about this, and we leave the mysteries to eternity. But anyone who thinks that he can go on sinning in the same way so that grace may abound doesn't understand redemption at all. May God help those of us who've been freed from sin to no longer listen to its voice. One reason for getting together like this is to encourage each other in the pathway of life as a Christian. The Roman letter is the great Magna Carta of the Christian faith. We're looking at the life of a new man when God forgives our iniquities. Be ye holy, for I am holy. That's the basic will of God. In verse 11 of Romans 6, he says, Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God. Reckon yourselves in that manner. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lusts thereof. For sin shall not have dominion over you. When the Lord was getting ready to raise Lazarus, his sister said, Lord, by this time he stinks. Lazarus rose from the grave and walked out, but he still had the grave clothes on him. The Lord said, loose him and let him go. And when we're lifted out of our deadness of being separated from God, sometimes it seems like we still have some of those grave clothes lingering on us as well. And we need to get rid of that which remains of our deadness. 1 Peter 2 verse 1. Put off that which should not be there. We're talking about holiness in our behavior. Now at this point in the text of the 6th chapter of the Roman letter, there are three words that become key. The words are know, reckon, and yield. And the force of this passage collects under those three terms. Know, reckon, and yield. In verse 3 of Romans 6, the first word in the King James translation, at least, is know. In verse 6, the first word is knowing. In verse 9, the first word is knowing. The first 10 verses of Romans 6 are doctrinal verses. These are cognitive verses. They're presenting us with foundational data. They're giving us substantial truth on which we can build. 
And then in verse 11, the first word likewise shows that he's pulling us through the first 10 verses again. Things having been thus settled, we now move on. Likewise means that with all of that we've talked about well in mind, we pursue the next truth. You can't come to verse 11 without those first 10 verses. Then he says, likewise. Duty is always based on doctrine. Exhortation never comes in a vacuum. It's always built on truth. And because this is true, this is how you must behave, says Paul. We're one with Christ. When he died, we died. When he was buried, we were buried. When he rose, we rose. And as he walks in newness of life, so we walk in newness of life. Christ will never die again. And because he will never die again, we need never die again. Hosea said that God's people were destroyed because of a lack of knowledge. He didn't say they were destroyed because of a lack of dedication. He didn't say they were destroyed because of a lack of commitment or of a lack of worship or of a lack of religion. But my people are destroyed because of a lack of knowledge. You'll never be able to live out what you don't know. In the first chapter of Isaiah, verses 2 and 3, the hallmark statement was made there. Israel doth not know. My people doth not consider. So in Philippians 4, 8, Paul says, think on these things. Count on what you know to be true. And again in Colossians 3, 8, you have put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge. Once we know we are dealing with a vanquished foe. Once we know we're dealing with a monarch who has been dethroned. Once we know the tomb is really open and we really have come out of the grave, that we can get those grave clothes off and get on with the victory. So in verse 11, he says, likewise, and then the second key word, reckon, reckon, logismoi, logismoi. It's a mathematical kind of expression to reckon. It means to number something, to count something, to account, to estimate, to impute, to put to somebody's account. That's what the word reckon is all about. It refers to calculating in the mind, to reasoning, to affirming in the mind that something is so. So Paul is saying, you know and you now affirm it to be true. You now conclude that it is true. You count on it as true. You know it's true because the data says it's true. And now you believe it with a settled confidence and you act on the basis of what you have decided to believe. Somebody may say, well, it's hard for me to believe that I am no longer a victim of the old man. I know that God forgives iniquity. But it's just hard for me to believe because I have such a hard time living the Christian life. It's hard for me to believe that I have really died and nevertheless I live and yet not I but Christ lives in me. It's hard for me to believe that I possess the divine nature. I know that it says that, but for me it's difficult to affirm that. Why is it difficult? There are at least three reasons why it might be difficult to affirm that. Some of us seem to just expect to be victims of sin all of our lives. We may never have learned what the actual foundation of the Christian faith is. Satan, after all, does not want you to believe that you possess the divine nature. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He's always going to be trying to bring you down and make you believe that lies are true, and he's pretty successful at that. So some people just expect to be the victims of sin and have that kind of a defeatist mentality. Also, it can be difficult to believe that you possess the divine nature because the redemptive regeneration and recreation that God did in you was non-experiential. You didn't feel anything. It was a divine transaction. It occurred spiritually, not experientially. When we saw those kids baptized up there, we did. There, the earth didn't shake. There wasn't thunder in the sky. 
We didn't see anything spiritual happening. It occurred spiritually, but it did not occur experientially. Salvation in its purest essence is non-experiential. It's not determined by what you experience when it occurs. On a number of occasions, I've had two weddings on the same day. And sometimes one of the brides will be so giddy that she can hardly touch the ground with her feet. And maybe the other bride later that night will be matter of fact or seem even cold. But at the end of the day, they're both equally married. And that is a matter of fact. You can baptize two people and one of them cries their eyes out and hugs you to death. And the other just seems nonchalant about it. But if their faith and obedience are real, they're both equally in Christ, no matter what their emotional experience was. People of faith can accept the facts without having to have some kind of an external proof or without looking for verifying phenomena. We can't see the fact that sin is a vanquished foe, but the Bible tells us that it is. A third reason why it might be difficult for accepting this in your own life. It can be difficult to believe that you possess the divine nature because in the fury of the conflict with sin that you live in your own life, It just makes us wonder how it could possibly be true. The conflict of sin in us, which many times we lose, makes us wonder how it can really be so. It's hard to believe that the tyranny of sin is broken because there's still a real struggle going on and we lose a lot. But we are to believe. That's what this word reckon is saying. We are to believe that we are made partakers of the divine nature anyway because the Bible says it is so. It is a fact of faith. Paul says, affirm it, believe it, reckon it. That's the commandment. Reckon it, whether you feel like it or not. Now, I'm not talking here about psychological mind games. I'm not talking about self-hypnosis or fooling ourselves in some manner. I'm just talking about believing God's word, believing that sin in its power is broken so far as we are concerned. Abraham and Sarah had a hard time believing they were going to have a son. They both laughed about it. But chapter four says that at least ultimately Abraham believed God because it was a faith fact. There was no physical way that it could be possible, but Abraham believed it because God said it. What could be more frustrating than being a Christian who thinks himself primarily a self-centered sinner, and yet whose purpose in life is to produce a God-centered holiness? Paul says, reckon this, count on this, affirm that it is so that sin is defeated in your life, and live as if that were true. Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. Count on that. Your biography is written in two volumes. Volume 1 is before your conversion, before your salvation. That's the old man. Volume 2 begins with your resurrection with Christ. And it's inconceivable to go back and open, reopen Volume 1. Salvation by grace does not lead us to sin. That was the original question in verse 1. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Sin as a tyrant has been canceled in your life. Sin has no more dominion over us. Years ago, in a Latin American country, they were having a revolution. Right in the middle of this revolution, an American citizen was captured, and he was sentenced to death. But an American officer rushed in front of the firing squad and draped an American flag over this guy just before they were ready to shoot him. 
And then he said, if you fire through the American flag, you will incur the wrath of a whole nation. And they let the guy go. There is a sense similarly in which we are draped in the protecting righteousness of Christ. Isaac Watts put it this way. In him, the tribes of Adam boast more blessings than their fathers lost. We've been blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies, and he is working in us to work out his good pleasure. He who began a good work in us will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. God has created us anew, and we need to reckon that. That's why Paul emphasizes this word. We need to have confidence when we're tempted that we can do things God's way. He gives us the courage. He gives us the strength. He gives us the power. That you cannot, in the power of God, have the victory over is a lie. You can have the victory anytime you choose to reach out and take the victory. What did Paul say? There is no temptation that has taken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above what you are able, but will with that temptation make a way of escape. There never will be a tyrannizing temptation that you cannot, in the power of God, have the victory over, because you are alive unto God in Jesus Christ. Everything is because we're in him. We are in Christ. And where else is this even said to be true? Who says... I'm in Buddha. Did you ever hear anybody say, I am in Muhammad? I've never heard that. I'm in Confucius? No. I'm in Mary Baker Eddy. I'm in Judge Rutherford. I'm in Pastor Russell. I'm in Joseph Smith. I've never heard any of that. But we are in Christ. So we reckon that. We affirm it to be so. There's also another key word here that we mentioned, and that is the word yield beginning in verse 13. No has to do with the mind. That was the first word. Reckon has to do with the heart deciding to believe. That was the second word. And now yield has to do with the will. In John 13, 17, the statement was made that if you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. Here he says in verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lust. Neither yield unto sin, but yield unto God. Verse 12 says, therefore, <coughs> let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. When we see a therefore, we know what it's there for. It takes us from the past statement to the present one. We have never said that sin is not a force to be reckoned with. We'd be fools to say that. We've just said that sin is not Lord anymore. Sin is a dethroned monarch, and even though it's a dethroned monarch, it's still around giving orders. But these orders do not have to be obeyed, even though they sometimes are. Sin wants to pull us back under its control, even though it has no right to do that now. Let not sin therefore reign. Before we were Christians, sin was our king. We were its slaves. Verse 17 says, you were the slaves of sin. Now Paul says, let not sin therefore reign. If sin is no longer your monarch, don't let it act like it is. It doesn't have any right to do that, so don't give it any right to do that. Sin has no more dominion over you. That's an indicative fact. Don't let it act like it does. That's an imperative. So 1 Peter 2, verse 9, You're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own, to show forth praises 
taken out of darkness into his marvelous light. You're now the people of God. You're now the recipients of mercy. And then he says, abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul. Look at who you are. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body. You know where sin wants to reign? In your mortal body. This earthly, physical organism with all its members, including the brain. The beachhead sin uses to approach us is the body. If we could just get rid of these bodies, we could have a lot more holiness. We started coming down to this camp out about 1984, and we've seen since that time a lot of the brethren delivered from these bodies. Good for them. Romans 8.21 says that the creation itself shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption and be set loose in the glorious liberty of the children of God. This whole physical dimension groans and has labor pains. And also we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the redemption, the adoption, that is the redemption of our body. It's going to be changed away from being a mortal body because, Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. When the Lord comes, he's going to change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body. 1 Corinthians 15.50, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You can't get into heaven in that thing you're in right now. Corruption does not inherit incorruption. We won't all sleep, but we'll all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. This corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. That's deathlessness. And then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. He doesn't say, let not sin therefore reign in your soul. He doesn't say, let not sin therefore reign in your spirit. He's not saying, let not sin therefore reign in you. He says, let it not reign in your mortal body. That's why we have the struggle of Romans chapter 7. In our better selves, we want the right things, but our bodies are a problem. Have you noticed that? I've noticed that. I hate to go ahead to Romans 7 because we're not even done with chapter 6. But in in chapter 7, he says, I do stuff I don't want to do. It's sin that dwells in me. In 7.22, I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law. Where? I see another law in my members. What does that mean? He means in my bodily parts. And it wars against the law of my mind. So, verse 25, so then with the mind, I serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. And he says in 7.24, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the, what? From the body. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Just get me out of this body. It's killing me. The struggle comes at the point of our body and our bodily desires. So in verse 12, or chapter 12, he says, I beseech you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's the issue. 1 Corinthians 9.27, I beat my body. Down body, down body. I beat it into submission because it's the body that's the problem. Here in 6.12, he says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lust. The bodily lusts are constantly crying out for fulfillment. Sin will dominate if you let it. If you only pamper your body and entertain your body and expose your body to temptation, then you're going to have problems. All the sensory factors exposed to this world, 
become channels through which temptation can draw you into sin and you can allow sin to reign over you. Sin will dominate if you don't deal with it. It doesn't have to dominate you, though. The very fact that he says, don't let it, indicates that I don't have to let it, right? Don't let sin reign in your mortal body. It would like to, but I don't have to let it. What's the key factor? The key factor here must be my will if he tells me, don't let it do it. It must be my will because I'm the guy who either has to let it or not let it. So many people want to get all mystical about the Christian life and just say, oh, let go, and let God, you don't have to do anything. They'll say, I do nothing and God does it all. But the commandments in the Bible are not to God, they're to you. Your will has to be activated. When you yield, that's our third key word, that's your will. You yield your will. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. You work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Yes, it's God who's working in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure, but that will only come to the surface as your will is activated in accordance with his. Holiness in behavior is not a sudden thing or an instantaneous thing. It's a way of life, and you fight it all along the way. You fight it every day to be holy because you've still got a body. I've actually had people say to me occasionally things like, well, 10 years ago, sin was eradicated from my life, and I haven't sinned in the past 10 years. One man told me, well, I can't remember the last time I sinned. I just wanted to take his pulse and see if he was really in there. Because he's got a body just like you've got a body. If you've still got your body, you've still got your problem. Sanctification is a process, and we don't know the fullness of it until we get to go be with God. So in verse 13, still in Romans 6 now, Neither yield ye your members... Your members are your faculties, the organs of your body, the vents of humanness bound up in your body. Don't yield these things as an instrument. The word is hopla. It means a weapon. Don't use, use these things within your body as a weapon towards sin. Sin is viewed here as a king who wants our bodies to be weapons to promote sin. Don't let him use you as one of his weapons. Don't let him use you physically in this way. There's nothing wrong with your bodily parts. God looked at your bodily parts as a part of creation, and he pronounced it all good, very good. You can use your hands and your feet and every other part of your body for the glory of God. 12.1 says, present your bodies holy and acceptable unto God. So certainly it's possible to do this. Your body is acceptable to God. It's neutral in that sense. You can use it as an instrument to sin or as an instrument of righteousness, and you are the one who decides. Yield to God as those who are alive from the dead. You have affirmed who you now are, and you yield on that basis. Yield your bodily parts as weapons of righteousness in the hand of God to produce what God wants. See your body as a weapon in the hand of God to produce righteousness, cutting through the sinful world. Let God look at you and say, He's my man, she's my woman. That's my young person, one of my weapons of righteousness. Peter said of Paul in 2 Peter 3.16 that in his epistles he speaks of things which are hard to be understood. 
which the unlearned and unstable rest as they do the other scriptures. These are closely knit, intricate discussions that the Apostle Paul is writing here. Sin is a debt. It's a burden. It's a thief. Sin is a sickness. It's a leprosy. It's a plague. Sin is a poison. It's a serpent. It's a sting. Everything that man hates, sin is. It's a load of curses and calamities beneath whose crushing intolerable pressure the whole creation continues to grow. Who is the undertaker that digs a grave for man? Who is the painted temptress that steals the virtue of man? Who is the murderess who destroys the life of man? Who is the sorceress who first deceives and then damns the soul of man? It's sin. It's all sin. Who, by division in the church, rends the seamless robe of Christ? Who is this Delilah that sings the Nazarite to sleep and delivers up the strength of God into the hands of God's uncircumcised enemies? It's all sin. Sin is life-wrecking. Sin is a soul-damning reality. In verses 18 and 22, it's still in Romans 6. Paul says, being made free from sin. The greatest gift that God could ever give us is to make us free from sin. When he forgives iniquity, that's exactly what he does. He makes us free from sin. Free from its penalty. Free from its power. Free from its debilitating presence. Free to be able to fulfill all we were intended to be. You have a new master which obviates the old master. The old master is sin, and the new master is obedience. And by the way, these are the only two options. You're going to have one master or the other, and there's no middle ground there. You choose to obey God, or you choose not to obey God, and you can't serve two masters. If you're a slave, you can't have two people giving you orders. When I first graduated from high school, I went to work in a machine shop where I was the low man on the totem pole, and everybody in the shop thought they were my boss. So I'd be given a, a work order by one person, and before I could get that done, somebody else was pulling me off of that and telling me to do something else. I had lots of masters, and it, uh, it wasn't an entirely comfortable situation to try to please so many masters at once. If you're the slave of sin... Sin begets sin, which begets more sin, and begets more sin until it begets death. We hurry from one degrading service to another until it finally wreaks our ruin. Sin will take you farther than you ever wanted to go, for longer than you ever intended to stay, and it will cost you more than you ever intended to pay. But in Christ, we die to the old slavery, and we live to a new slavery. We're created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has ordained that we should walk in them. This new creation issues forth in consequential behavioral change. Obedience will be there in your life, even if it is obscured at some points. Matthew Henry put it this way. If we would know to which of these two families we belong, we must inquire to which of these two masters we yield our obedience. If you're a real Christian, you may sin, 
But the better you is going to hate that sin increasingly as time advances. Paul is drawing on an extended contrast of two slaveries here. So many people out in the world think that they're free, that they are living the free life. They don't want to come to Christ because they think that that is some kind of bondage, and they think that now they have so much liberty, when in fact they are the slaves of sin. Paul says, you were the slaves of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart, that form of doctrine. You have obeyed the body of saving truth. The word form there, tupos, means a mold, as a casting mold. The mold is in the shape of a servant. God saw you as a slave to sin. God melted you into repentance. He reduced you to the basic elements, and he reported you into a new mold, the form of doctrine into which you were delivered. And coming out of that mold, you are a new creation, and you are in a new shape. You have conformed to the mold into which you were poured. You have conformed to the pattern of truth, which is God's word. People live the way they learn to live. Romans 12, 2 says, don't let the world pour you into its mold, because that's always a future possibility that we will allow that. You've been poured into the mold of the sound teaching of God. We're in the image of the Lord, and we bear the stamp of the Lord. We see the word obey in these verses again and again and again. Paul's theme in the entire Roman letter is the obedience of faith. There's a lot about faith, yes, but there's a lot about obedience, too. We find it in verse 1 at the beginning. We find it in chapter six, in chapter 1 at the beginning. We find it in chapter 16 at the end. Paul is always talking all the way through about the obedience of faith, because obedience is the expression of faith. The longer we live in Christ, the more obedient we ought to become. Titus 2.11, The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, godly in this present world. 1 Peter 1.22, You have purified your souls in obeying the truth. So we have been set free, but we've been set free to do right. Sin is God's would-be murderer. The devil would kill God if he could. If sin had its way, it would completely eliminate God. So when we finally come to truly understand sin, then we have a greater appreciation for what it means to be free from sin. And I can tell you today that you do not have to commit any particular sin. No, in this world you will never be entirely sin free. But you do not have to commit any particular sin. Sin is no longer your master. And that's what makes it so ridiculous of us when we do sin. It's really ridiculous the amount of sinning that we still do. In verse 18 he says, this is who you are. And in verse 19 he says, so now act like it. Now that you are a slave of righteousness, act like it. Of course the flesh is going to want to get in the way. And Paul says basically, kill it. Mortify it. Whatever it takes, whatever pain it takes, mortify that. You don't get away with sin because it just begets more of itself. The more you sin, the more you want to sin, and it just enhances itself. Rather, he says, yield your bodily parts as slaves to righteousness. God's grace was not given to you to allow you to sin and get away with it, but to make you so that you would never 
path to sin. The idea of being a Christian is not impunity from sin, but it's that we are freed from sin. Freed from sin. And as you go on living a righteous life and practicing it with all of your might and with all of your energy and with all of your time, you will find that the process that went on before in which you went from bad to worse and became viler and viler is entirely reversed. You become cleaner, you become purer, you become holier, and more and more conformed to the image of the Son of God. This is an important concept because nobody stands still. You're either moving in one direction or the other. Each slavery is a developing slavery. Neither one of these slaveries stands still. Think about this. God said to Pharaoh through Moses, let my people go. But that wasn't all he said, was it? Let my people go that what? Let my people go that they may serve me. We don't understand that commandment to let God's people go if we don't understand that last part. Nobody was ever delivered from bondage just to do what they wanted. We were delivered from bondage to do what God wants. Let my people go that they may serve me. The Israelites were delivered from their cruel Egyptian taskmasters to be committed to a new master with a capital M and to serve him with a capital H. It took the children of Israel a whole generation to learn that to the extent that they ever did learn it. The slavery of sin ends up in death. So verse 21, the apostle asked, What fruit did you have in the things whereof you are now ashamed? That's a great question. And the answer is zero. The answer is none. What fruit did you have in those things wherever you were now ashamed? When you were the slave of sin and you were out doing all of that, exhausting yourself in the realm of sin, what fruit did that produce for you? The answer is zero. The wages of sin is death. It's what you earned. Justice is obligated to pay it, or it would be defrauding the worker of his wages. But the gift of God is eternal life. It's not a wage. You can't earn it. If you want what you deserve, then God will give it to you. He'll give you the wages you earned. But if you want what you don't deserve, God will give you that as well because of what Jesus did for us. To offer the world the gift of salvation, really, all you have to do is read them the sixth chapter of the Roman letter. It's all in there. It's a call from sin to holiness. And by the way, it's not only a call from sin to holiness, but it's an exclusive call from sin to holiness. Because if you're not willing to come on God's terms, there are no other terms available. Talked longer than I intended to. We've got a little bit of time, I think, here if you have questions, comments, or thoughts. Mark was just brushing his hair. Enjoy it while you got it. Anybody have a question, a comment, or a thought? Hey, Rick. Um, I'd like to go back to the first uh, 
session that we had this morning. I'd like to hear your thoughts on uh, Luke, the 17th chapter, and in particular, uh, verse 3, take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. We're definitely obligated to forgive when he repents and when he asks for forgiveness. I believe it goes better with us if we forgive, though, even when people don't. This is something that has to do with the way we're made. If I'm going to wait perpetually until somebody repents and asks forgiveness, I may wait until my life is over. And I may have carried with me that resentment, that discouragement, that a lack of forgiveness on my part caused me to have. If, on the other hand, I forgive even when he doesn't repent, that's between him and God to come to terms with that himself. I believe I'm better off, and I feel like I've been able to bear this out in my own life. I'm better off if I forgive even though he didn't ask. I'm going above and beyond the call of that passage that you cited. But I think it goes better with me internally if I just forgive anyway. Did you have further comment you wanted to make on that? Oh, I didn't. I forgot. <laughs> no? Okay. Anybody else? Gerald's got something over there, Jason. Gerald Clevenger. Your treat on him. I see our current culture uh, working overtime to redefine the role of the church in our society to be that of a social program to relieve those who sin from the consequences of sin. But clearly here we're, we're told that the purpose of the church is to proclaim freedom from sin not freedom to sin. Right. Very good point. Thank you. Other questions, comments, or thoughts? You made, you made mention earlier that it is possibly impossible for us to forget when somebody has done a wrong against us. But how can you, in your own mind, say that you know that you have forgiven a person? I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back to the monetary illustration because I think it's it's easier for me to handle it that way. If you owe me a hundred dollars, I know whether I have forgiven that debt or not. And if I've forgiven it, I'm not going to reinstate it. I'm going to just admit that it's forgiven. I'll, I'll write it off. I learned something from that. I may not loan you money again, but you don't owe me. You don't owe me. 
And I think we can learn to be just that matter-of-fact about it, even when it's something that seems more complicated than a financial debt. We can learn just to say, you don't owe me, I'm letting it go, life's too short, I want to forgive, and I know it's better for me, it may be better for you too, but I'm going to forgive you. And then there is always a temptation to reinstate it. I think that may be what you're referring to, but I need to train myself not to pick that up again. No, I forgave, that debt is forgiven, it's all past, and I'm going to learn from it, I'm going to keep in mind things I need to know from that, but I'm not going to reinstate that debt. I think with a little retraining, we can each learn to do that. It's an excellent question, Ryan. Thank you. I think there was somebody. Yeah, okay. Yeah, you know, I got to thinking about that. When it comes to, I know on my part, when it comes to forgiving someone, um, it's it's a lot easier when there is a direct reconciliation. Absolutely. The, the I'm sorry's are said Absolutely. and the weeping occurs. That's a, that's a wonderful moment. It but is. sometimes that doesn't happen, and yet we still are called upon to forgive. Right. Uh, for me, you know, having the sense of that, that compassion and outpouring of mercy is not always clear, but yet you know in your mind, intellectually, I must forgive, I should forgive. And for me, the thing that really helps is to get my hands onto something that I can demonstrate forgiveness, such as praying for that person, praying for their welfare, uh, the mercy of God upon them, that they would be happy, things like this. There's a way to, I believe, to engage so that forgiveness is is carried out. I agree completely, and I'm glad you made that point about how much easier it is if they have repented and asked for reconciliation said they're sorry and please forgive me. That's definitely a lot easier, and those are good moments. But I agree, too, we should forgive anyway. When Jesus gave that sample prayer for his disciples, the only part of it that he went back and explained was, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And he made a flat statement about it, which we're all well aware of. Well, it's 11.33 on Friday morning. Are we done? I think we are. Thanks, everybody.